Let's look to the Lord in prayer. In the great global conflict, you sent Jesus Christ into this world to die for our sins. Keep us from underestimating the effect of that. Father, what we see in the scriptures is the way in which the hostilities of sin and the holiness of God, polar opposites, are bridged by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. What we need to do, Father, in an oppositional world is to understand how the hostilities of sin and the holiness of God are to be addressed in a way in which we minister to other people, in families, in schools, in our work, in our neighborhoods, politically, globally. There needs to be bridge work. And the bridge work is ultimately about who you are, who we are, and what you have done, not what we have done. So, Father, we are coming into your presence now, and what we want to do is to be able to absorb your truth and relate it to all of our lives. So, Father, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Come here, Father, again to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Bumper sticker wisdom about conflicts. As one wrote, I would agree with you, but then we'd both be wrong. Another. Never in the history of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Winston Churchill. One says, dialogue is the most effective way of resolving conflict. But another says, some people just need a high five in the face with a chair. <laughs> but then Ronald Reagan would have had it. Peace is not the absence of conflict. It is the ability to handle the conflict by peaceful means. What strikes me now is that in his latter years, the Apostle John, rather than removing himself from conflict, he is willing to immerse himself in conflict. And in the process, what strikes me is that he's going to provide for us not a strategy to pursue conflict management, but rather a strategy to pursue conflict resolution, not based upon human preferences, but based upon biblical principles. And that's what we're going to do this morning as we now conclude this entire series. Because if you, past, present, and most likely future, have been, are, or will be in the, in the whole realm of conflict, 
what you and I need to be able to do now is to bring together biblical principles to equip us to be able to address these hours in what I will call a Christ-centered, cross-based approach towards resolution. Knowing that you're dealing with the holiness of God and you're dealing with the hostilities of evil and there needs to be a bridge builder where God sent Jesus Christ into this world as the ultimate bridge builder and where in their first coming, as we've noted, the penalty of sin was paid and subsequent to that second coming, the presence of sin will be removed. But you and I find ourselves between first and second comings. And so what we've got to do is to deal with the whole matter of how the Apostle John, for example, has laid before us a strategy for not conflict management, but rather conflict resolution. And he's going to model it for us in this passage. And you and I are going to see three significant elements here on how he pursues conflict resolution that is Christ-centered and cross-based. Let's dig in. Because I want to, first of all, draw for us verse 9 and again verse 10. The number one, when pursuing conflict resolution, seek to, number one, summarize the conflict accurately. That is what he's about to do. It's as if he is now summarizing the conflict for all the various stakeholders and then asking, in essence, have I summarized this accurately? Have I laid out all the facts? Am I missing something? Are we overlooking? But then again, he's being guided by the Holy Spirit. So what we see here this morning is not exhaustive principles for conflict resolution, but sufficient principles to get us going. Because you might want to combine this with our exposition of 1 Kings 3, where King Solomon, we studied this a few years ago, dealt conflict resolution matters at the forefront with regard to two individuals claiming they each was the mother of a particular child. Now the Apostle John wants us to dig in. And he says, I've written something to the church. But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. And you and I might be saying, well, what was it that he has previously written to the church? And the answer is, we really don't know. So then it begs the question, did Diotrephes hit the delete button? Did he remove that letter that sent so that nobody knows what the Apostle John is truly wanting of us, intending for us to say to us, but something was written and it's not there. So instead, what he does is he goes to the particular stakeholder in the realm of conflict and his name is Diotrephes. Now, if you have a Bible dictionary and you were to look up the name Diotrephes, what you would find is that that name means literally nourished by Zeus. Nourished by Zeus. Now, Zeus was the false god of the Greek Empire. And then, of course, as the Romans came and they conquered the Greeks, Zeus would be renamed Jupiter. Regardless of that matter, he was considered first in the pantheon. 
But now what we deal here in the matter of this issue of who comes first is a man by the name of Diotrephes who likes to put himself first. And what you and I will find is that when we are dealing with matters of conflict, we are going to be dealing with who comes first. So now, ponder that. Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. This afternoon, you go on YouTube and you watch some various videos, I am second. And you're struck by political figures, sports figures, musical figures, a wide range of individuals who have professed faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, and they are saying, I am second, which begs the question then, and who is first? Diotrephes wants to be first. Which was a painful experience for the Apostle John to have to work through in his own personal relationship, you see, with Jesus Christ as his Lord, as his Savior. Because as Mark puts it, James and John, known as the sons of thunder, these were not timid guys. They came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them as if he didn't know, What do you want me to do for you? Question. He's going to draw them out. And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now, what frustrates the other ten disciples is that they didn't beat them, these two to the punch and ask the question first of Jesus. You see. And what strikes me is that when there are conflicting authorities, who's first? It will lead to conflicting loyalties. So when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John, the apostle John, who writes this, and Jesus called them to him, because what you've got to bear in mind is that whenever at work, in the home, growing families, single or married, conflict is an opportunity for instruction. Jesus said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised what? Authority, same Greek word, over them. But it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you, first. Now he's used the word first, and he's used the word authority. And look at the screen. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Diotrephes. The Diotrephes effect. And the Diotrephes effect is alive and well across the world, globally, and of course in our own personal relationships, personally. And here we have this tremendous challenge on our hands here of combining the idea of first with the idea of authority 
and see how all this works itself out because Diotrephes likes to put himself first. Incredible story out of the Civil War. General Sherman's last campaign in the South. Certain changes and commanders were made. General Howard was placed at the head of a special division. And soon after this, the war closed, and there was to be a review of the entire army in Washington, D.C., and the population would be out in mass to observe. Well, the night before the review, General Sherman sent for General Howard and said, the political friends of the officer whom you succeeded, they're determined that he will ride at the head, and I want you to help me out. The head of the Corps, said Howard. The head of my unit, the head of the Corps. The head of your unit, said Sherman. But then Sherman added, I know you led those men through Georgia, the Carolinas, but General Howard, I hear you're a Christian and can stand the disappointment. Sir, if you put it on those grounds, there is but one answer. Let that general ride at the head of the Corps. Yes, said Sherman. Give him that honor. But you will report to me at nine o'clock and will ride by my side at the head of the entire army. And when General Howard, the biographer tells us, protested, his commander's orders were positive. And so on that day in D.C., in the review, he had a place of honor at the head of the whole army. Diotrephes wants the place of honor. And you see now the tension of priority and authority here. He wants to be first, and the word authority is used. But then we remember the theological background combined with the historical background to this, where in Isaiah chapter 14, there's this descriptive, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. And I'll sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And listen to this as this descriptive of Satan is offered. I will make myself, doesn't say God will make me, I will make myself, L-I-K-E, like the most high. And that gets transported into the Garden of Eden. Where the serpent said to the woman, you sh will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be L-I-K-E. K-E, God, you see what's happening here? So this whole matter of likeness is being twisted and distorted. And now what we find here is what you and I might describe this morning as the Diotrephes effect. And the Diotrephes effect is alive and well, particularly where people offer out of their sense of timidity to simply pursue a sense of conflict management rather than conflict resolution and go to the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus paid the penalty for our sins and then will return 
to remove the presence of our sins. You see, conflict's more than just a disagreement. It's a situation in which one or both parties perceive a threat. Conflicts then fester, they grow, they magnify when they're ignored. God did not ignore it. He sent Jesus to the cross. And when they are ignored, the trigger then produces stronger and stronger emotions that send everybody to their corners. But when we opt for management rather than resolution, we are opting for an alternative to a Christ-centered, cross-based approach where we take into account the fact of the holiness of God, we take into account the hostilities of sin, and we try to address the diatrophies effect, who likes to put himself first but does not acknowledge, you see, this whole matter of authority that's being spoken of here in these verses. And you say, well... Diotrephes must have a, a dominant personality. Well, frankly, if you watch the Apostle John and his buddy Peter out in the streets of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4, so does John. He was known as one of the sons of thunder, you see. But there's a difference between a dominant personality and a domineering spirit. There is a difference between authority and authoritarianism. And as my former pastor, Warren Wearsby, puts it, there is a difference between leadership and dictatorship. Parents need to understand this. Employers, employees need to understand this. In the work, in the church, wherever. A leader shows the church what to do by example. The dictator tells the church what to do. A leader depends on humility, prayer, and love. A dictator depends on pressure, force, and fear. The true leader goes before and encourages. The dictator stands behind and drives. The leader leads by serving. The dictator expects others to serve him. Bring it, you see, to the relational scale and ponder the dynamics of authority and the whole matter of loyalty and how all of this relates here because people are going to have to start choosing sides. Am I following John's writings or am I going to follow Diotrephes' leadings? The Diotrephes effect is alive and well in this culture. And you get to verse 10. And so now this man who's in his advanced years, he's going to be proactive. He's not going to be reactive. He wants peace, not truce. So if I come, he's got to be honest about where he's at in this stage of life. If I come, here's my objective. I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. It's in the plural, which means then it's not just about Diotrephes' attitude towards the Apostle John, but towards all of those who are being ministered to through the Apostle John's approach to things. But the Apostle John understood the dynamics of leadership having been at the shoulder of Jesus Christ and there at the cross and there in the upper room observing the glorified body subsequent to resurrection. He's talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. 
And what you and I have got to bear in mind here is that we're dealing then with the diatrophies effect, which can be seen in the workplace, seen in the church, seen in the family, seen in the world. And I've pondered and written down some of the diatrophies effects. Bring it even into the church. A healthy gathering of people can lose its vitality because of the high amount of energy necessary to continue gathering regularly with the diatrophies in our midst. The diatrophies effect. Not a dominant personality we're talking about here. A domineering spirit. The diatrophies effect. A high level of negativity. Constantly questioning, challenging the authority. Questioning any sense and squelching any sense of biblical encouragement. The diatrophies effect. A climate develops in which fewer people are willing to minister to one another. It's a place where a central voice begins to dominate, leaving fewer and fewer voices to contribute. The diatrophies effect is such that a diatrophies fails to distinguish between biblical truths and personal preferences. The diatrophies effect. So we're not talking about a dominant personality. We're talking about a domineering spirit that's misaligned outside of the alignment that comes with submitting oneself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Where out of lordship comes loyalty. And so if I come, I'll bring up what he's doing. Talking wicked nonsense against us, John, and those ministering with him. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. 1863. War Between the States. Biography of Mary Lincoln tells us. Two children were sitting on the rug in front of the fire in the White House. One was showing photographs to the other for the evening's entertainment. Tad Lincoln proudly held up a picture of his father for his little cousin Catherine Helm and then said, this is the president. And Catherine shook her head violently and said, that is not the president. Mr. Davis is the president. And Tad Lincoln, frustrated, shouted out, hurrah for Abe Lincoln, to which his cousin retorted, hurrah for Jefferson Davis. For you see, Catherine was from the Confederacies in the South, Kentucky, she knew that Abraham Lincoln was her uncle, but she was just as determined to state that he was surely not her president. Where there are divided authorities, there are divided loyalties. And what a church needs is to establish the fact that there is only one head of the church, and it is the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what the family needs to understand under the roof is that there is one head of this family, and it is the Lord and the Savior, Jesus Christ. Because this duel of authority and first are at the forefront, you see, of the issue of conflict here. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, nourished by Zeus is his name, likes to put himself first. But you and I know the first shall be last. 
and the last shall be first, does not acknowledge our authority. But then the Apostle John would remember and recall and then he ultimately write about the one who said, he must increase and I must decrease. Who increases? Who decreases when we gather together? So now we've come to this first of the three elements here of conflict resolution, not conflict management. It is Christ-centered. It is cross-based. It takes into account the big global spiritual dynamic of the evil one who sought to be like God, wanting preeminence, and then bring the sense of being like God into the geography of humanity, the Garden of Eden, and now Eve has got to address this whole matter of being like God and the authority and the matter of put one first is at the forefront as a video appears on YouTube, I am second. Where are you at in all this? And how does this relate to your dynamics in the workplace, the family, relationships? Because number one, pursuing conflict resolution, not conflict management. We seek to, number one, summarize the conflict accurately. And now I've found, even as I've read just two verses, and I won't go into it again, six elements in which John has drawn out the whole issue of what this conflict entails. But now you move to the second. It's found in verses 11 and 12, and we're going to pen it this way, number two, that when pursuing conflict resolution in the home, in the church, in politics, in business, nationally, globally, number two, contrast the issues clearly. Number one, summarize the conflict accurately, 9 and 10. But number two, contrast the issues clearly. And notice how brilliantly the Apostle John uses the little word B-U-T. It's a strategic word that leaders use to be able to develop an issue of contrast. Beloved, do not imitate evil, B-U-T. But imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Stop at that point. Notice he starts once again with beloved. Here's that sense where you are taken back to where the Apostle John in verse 1 had read the, written the elder to the beloved Gaius. And time and again we have said it doesn't read the Apostle John to the unknown follower of Jesus, whom I love in truth. No, what I see here are opposites, polar opposites. Here is authority combined with humility. The Apostle John refers to himself simply as the elder. He doesn't even name his name. On the other hand, he refers to Gaius as the beloved Gaius. And so, with this humility in mind here, with the commitment to accuracy, beloved, I do not, do not, he says, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. And the Apostle John's mind's got to be going back to all the ways in which Jesus Christ has addressed the whole matter, you see, of evil. 
such as in that classic Lord's Prayer, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and whoever does evil has not seen God. And so you begin to ponder, what is, what is Diotrephes doing here to be able to exacerbate this kind of situation? But then my mind goes back to Pilgrim's Progress, and Bunyan's Christian is in a particular room with the interpreter in the interpreter's house, and we're told he... Christian could not understand how the flames kept leaping higher and higher and higher while someone would pour water on them. But then he saw another person toward the rear pouring on the oil. We are in an oil and water, water and oil, cosmic conflict, you see. And behind the relational matters of conflict and conflict resolution stands the global historical geographical element of what took place in Isaiah 14 when the evil one wanted to be like God Genesis 2 and 3 God makes them in him what his own image but then all of a sudden she wants to be what l-i-k-e like God and now we've got a likeness controversy on our hands here with the word first and the word authority, and we've got to ask, where's the oil and where's the water and who's pouring what on which? And in the meantime here, here's the one who talks about living water. Pens this thought here in verse 11. Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is what from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And aren't you amazed with the brilliance of the Apostle John and his ability to produce contrast throughout all of his writings, Gospel of John, Epistles of John, Revelation. He contrasts light and darkness, life and death, love and hate, true and false, evil and good. And the wise individual pursues not merely conflict management, but rather conflict resolution, who is Christ-centered, cross-based, understands the contrasts involved. That you're dealing with, ultimately, the most cosmic of cosmic issues at hand here, true versus false, right versus wrong. We're dealing, ultimately, with the matter of the sin of penalty being paid and the presence of sin ultimately being removed. And you're looking at the conflict and you're wondering, how can I gauge this? I see the symptoms. What's the cause behind all this? But then a story is told of a young boy who lived in the country. And his family home had a large water tank behind the house which held the family water supply. And out of curiosity, the little boy asked his father, Dad, how, much, how do you know how much water is in the tank? He can't see the water in the tank. But his wise father responded, do you see this glass cylinder? It's a gauge. It's a gauge. I know how much water there is in the tank by looking at the gauge. And so good leadership in the home, in the political sphere, in business, in the hospital, in this nation, in this world, gauges the internals by pondering the externals. 
And in verse 12, you and I are told Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And did you notice it says the truth, not my opinion. In other words, now, what he's saying is if you want to understand the whole matter of how you gauge things, start with the truth, not human opinion, not personal preference. And out of all this, we also add our testimony. He doesn't substitute his testimony for God's truth. He now adds his testimony to what has been articulated with regard to the truth regarding who this Demetrius is, and as, and as you know, our testimony, our testimony is true. So now here he's dealing with not merely a dominant personality, far beyond that, he's dealing with a domineering spirit, and sometimes you'll deal with this in life groups, sometimes you'll deal with this in board meetings, sometimes you will deal with this in schools, you will deal with this in the workplace, you're going to deal with this in the home, you will deal with this in the nation. Be able to distinguish between a dominant personality and a domineering spirit. Be able to distinguish between leadership and dictatorship. Be able to distinguish between authority and authoritarianism. And ponder the diatrophies effect as you now move onward into the third of the three elements that the Apostle John, in fact, is modeling here for the way in which we do conflict resolution because spell it out in verses 13 through 15. I had much to write to you. But I would rather not write with pen and ink. Get this. I hope to see you soon. And we'll talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. So in this electronic world of ours, here comes the third element, that when you and I are pursuing conflict resolution, thirdly, seek to engage the stakeholders relationally. Don't go around them. Don't talk about them. Men, man up. Women, women up. But we are Christ-centered, cross-based, and now he wants to communicate effectively. Now he says, I had, much, I had much to write to you. He wants to write. But he seems to know that maybe Diotrephes will set the letter aside or reinterpret the letter for others so that they don't get the intent. And so I went online and I pondered three particular ads that got misinterpreted. Here's one, question mark, illiterate? If so, write today for free information. A second? We have an earring special. Have your ears pierced and get an extra pair to take home. And a third? Men wanted for work in a dynamite factory must be willing to travel. The Apostle John's ready to do some traveling. I want to write. I'm at my laptop. 
But rather than texting for them, or uh, rather than pen and ink, I hope to see you soon. We'll talk face to face. She watched the eyes. I hope to see you soon. We'll talk face to face. But then he wraps up in classic Jewish form that he is here at this point. Peace be to you. And in the Old Testament, peace was shalom, which means wholeness, which means bringing wholeness out of brokenness. And maybe you are dealing with broken matters in the home, at work, no matter where it is. He brings this up now and says, peace be to you. The friends greet you. He's relational. Greet the friends, each by name. And throughout 3 John, he is using names, except for himself. Because you see, there's a humility that matches his authority. Robert Morrison of China wrote with regard to his work as a missionary, the great fault in our mission is that no one likes to be second. And Dr. Samuel Brengo, who was introduced as the great Dr. Brengo, noted in his diary, if I appear great in their eyes, the Lord is most graciously helping me to see how absolutely nothing I am without him and helping me to keep little in my own eyes as the Apostle John would pen with regard to the John the Baptist, he must increase, I must decrease regarding Jesus, and you bring it home. And so you summarize the conflict accurately, you contrast the issues clearly, then you engage the stakeholders in this matter relationally, like Jesus did when he went to the cross and died for our sins. Let's stand together. So thank you for the wisdom you've provided us over the course of these nine months in the books of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And thank you for how practical these books are. Remind us that a conflict is much more than a disagreement. And that ultimately the matter of conflict was addressed at the cross of Christ. So, Father, may we take all the principles we find here, relate them in who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and give honor and glory to you and you alone. You are first. And for this we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.